Hey, we're getting into the book of James this summer, and before we do that this morning, uh, we had a little bit of family business to take care of. The first thing is this. Uh, we talked about this last week, but we're implementing some new safety and security uh, measures in our children's wing, which means that all of our check-in stations beginning July 14th are going to move all the way to the front of our children's wing. We're going to lock a couple of doors from the outside, not from the inside, so that people can't get into our children's wing during services. Uh, and if you um, are a parent, you check your kids in, uh, you check them in, you get a sticker, and from here on out, beginning July 14th, that sticker will be your pass in order to get into the children's wing to pick up your kids. And if you don't have that sticker with you, they're not going to let you back there. And there are no exceptions to that rule. If you recall last week, I, I talked about going to pick up my kid, and, um, and I went to, I went, you know, she ran over, daddy, 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 and they wouldn't let me have her because I didn't have the sticker. And I responded with, do you know who I am, you know? So it's, there's no exceptions to that rule. I'm included in that rule. Some, some of you have maybe asked about the elevator that drops people down in the middle of the children's wing, you know, uh, and said, well, are we going to be able to accommodate those with limited mobility in the elevator? Yes, we will. We've got measures in place to do that. So if you need that elevator because of limited mov mobility, please continue to use it. We'll work with you on that and all that stuff. But if you don't need that elevator, don't use it. Get some cardio. Use the stairs. Okay, everybody could use a little extra cardio, all right? But if you need the elevator, please continue to use it. We'll help you in doing that. Uh, also, uh, this morning, Cassandra Sunderdoss is, uh, is our children's director currently. This is her very last Sunday at Bayview Glen on staff. She'll continue to be here. She's part of our church community. She's part of our life group, actually, the life group that I'm in. We love Cassandra very, very much, and so wish her well and tell her she's awesome because today is her last day. Taking her place is Michelle Kim. Uh, Michelle is absolutely fantastic. She's got a couple years of experience here at Bayview is one of our uh, part-time children's coordinators. She's going to be the interim director, or not interim director, uh, director now for the summer and then going full-time in the fall for our Bayview kids wing. Michelle is fantastic. She's got her bachelor's degree in like youth and child development or something like that. She's worked at juvenile detention centers, which gives her uh, the skills and experience she needs to deal with my daughter. And, and she's worked at uh, Toronto Sick Kids Hospital, and she can do all that in three languages. So uh, Michelle is awesome. We're excited to have her as you know ongoing part of our team. So make sure that if if you uh, have an opportunity to to wish uh, congratulate Michelle and, and and wish Cassandra well, do that today. Uh, on top of that, we're actually on the hunt for three part-time Bayview Kids coordinators to help facilitate uh, Bayview Kids on Sunday morning. And so if that's you or if that's someone you know, please hop on the website. There's opportunities. There, fill out a job application, whatever, because we, we need to hire a few of those uh, forthwith. That means right away. So if that's you or if that's someone you know, uh, jump on the website and do that. Um, if you're brand new with us, there's a little connect card in front of you and the seat back. We would love for you to grab that, complete some information there. You can sign up for regular emails from me. You can get in a life group, get on a serve team, uh, because we would love for you to kind of take your next step here at Bayview Glen Church and finding a place to connect in community and serve, etc. So in order to do that, what you do is you complete that connect card and then you drop it in the offering plate as it comes by you uh, at the end of service today. So here's what we're doing this summer. We're studying the book of James, and here's, here's the great thing uh, about the book of James, is that it's extraordinarily practical. 
If you've read any of the other New Testament books or studied them, you know, Romans and Colossians, Ephesians, Paul is very theological in his words. He talks about God a lot, talks about what God has done, and that's great, and then he gets practical. But James, just right from the jump, gets, gets practical right away. Uh, and so we've subtitled the series actually Practical Wisdom for Every Day because this is something that you will be able to apply each and every Sunday here. You'll be able to apply it to your life immediately, like today or tomorrow morning on your commute. Not tomorrow, Tuesday. Um, Tuesday on your commute to work. These are things that, that you'll be able to apply right away. And what I want to do this summer is just kind of open up the Bible, read it, and talk about it. We're just going to do some work together. It's just good old-fashioned Bible study. In fact, I really don't have any like illustrations in my sermon this morning. Or like stories and stuff. And some of you guys are thinking, oh, thank God. Like, it's a great day. Let's get out of here early. That, yeah, we'll probably do that today, okay? And so I, I don't have a lot of those because all I want to do is just open up the Bible and just do a good old-fashioned Bible study in the book of James this summer. Are you with me on that? Good. So grab your Bible. If you don't have your Bible, there's one in the seat back in front of you. If you don't have your Bible, you can look on with a friend. You can also use your device, your iPhone, your iPad, whatever it is. But I want us to have a Bible in front of us this morning as we just kind of unpack uh, verse by verse, word by word, the book of James. I'll wait till I hear pages stop flipping. James chapter 1, verse 1. In my Bible, it's on page 846, so... Probably has not even close in your Bible, but I just thought I'd tell you that. All right, so James writes this to the church. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. We'll talk about all that. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith develops steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's all we're covering today. And let's just go word by word. Ready? James. First word. Let's meet our author here. Because there are a couple of different folks in the scripture named James. There's James, the son of Alphaeus. There's James and John, sons of Zebedee. They were brothers. This James is neither one of those Jameses, right? This is, this is James, the just. This is James, half-brother of Jesus. Right? This is Jesus' brother. You guys ever write these words and you don't know where the apostrophe goes? Like Jesus or Jesus's? Is it Jesus or Jesus's? Or is it Jesus's? <laughs> that's not right. I can almost tell you for certain that's not right. Okay. So I think it's just Jesus' brother. This is Jesus' brother. So here's the deal. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, so his mother Mary had him, first child. Uh, she and Joseph were married. Then they began to have children after that. And this is James, half-brother of Jesus, because they did not share, a, well, well their, their, their fatherhood, father, fatherly lineage was not the same. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and James, uh, his father, was Joseph. But they shared the same mom, Mary. This is Jesus' brother. Now listen, this is really fascinating to me for a lot of reasons, but, but let's, let's keep going. So half-brother of Jesus. Number two, James converted to Christ after the resurrection. 
he became a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus. He claimed the name of Jesus. He, he, he recognized Jesus' messianic authority, his godness, all of that stuff after the resurrection. He was not a follower of Christ during Jesus' life on earth. So much so, now watch this, that when Jesus started his earthly ministry, pay attention because this is critical. When Jesus started his earthly ministry, he began to heal people and he began to teach people and people were like all clamoring to, you know, get after him and hear him and listen to him and have him heal them. And, you know, houses were being filled up and people were just all going after Jesus. And he starts to make these odd claims, right, about like, I'm God and stuff like that, right? Now, listen. If your brother claimed to be God, what would you think of your brother? James thought the same thing. Watch this. It says, when his family heard it, that's Jesus, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. Like, James thought his brother Jesus was two sandwiches short of a picnic, right? You, 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 you are crazy as a loon. Listen, I'm going to see my brother this afternoon. I'm getting on a plane this afternoon, and, and, and I'm meeting my brother and my parents and, and my wife and kids and the whole deal for vacation. My brother is an extraordinary human being, one of the most humble, tender men I've ever met. He's very, very, very smart. If he claimed to be God, I would say, you are bonkers. You're nuts. And so James did. <laughs> then his brother is killed three days in the grave. Then the grave was empty. And then Paul says, then he appeared to, to James. Could you imagine his embarrassment, right? That Jesus now is appearing to his brother after the resurrection. And Jesus shows up to his brother and says, hey, it's me. I'm back. You know, James is going, remember I said you were out of your mind? I take that back. I take that back. So James is a post-resurrection convert to Christ. Jesus appeared to him, resurrected Jesus, and then James said, oh man, maybe all that stuff you said about being God, maybe that's real. And it was. Number three, James is an early church leader. In the first century in the church, people looked to James for his authority, his leadership. James, what should we do? James, how should we behave? James, what does this all mean? And James had some authority and some influence in the early church. Now watch, this is why this is all so critical to me. This is very fascinating. It's, go back one. This is Jesus' brother who is now converted to Christ, who has a lot of influence in the early church. And if I was writing a letter, and James doesn't write this letter to a specific church, he writes it to the broad church, scattered all over, we'll talk about that in a minute, scattered all over the Roman Empire. If I was writing that letter, I would kind of use my authority, my position, my influence. I would introduce myself as James, brother of Jesus, right? Watch how he introduces himself. He says, James a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't say brother of Jesus. He doesn't say early church leader. He doesn't say, oh, you guys know me. I'm James. No, he says, I'm a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And these two words in the original Greek are very, very interesting. This word servant is the original Greek word is doulos. It, it's translated bond servant sometimes. It's, it's translated slave. Uh, it, it, it means I'm, I'm, I'm in a lifetime of indentured servitude. James sees himself as a doulos to Jesus, a slave, a bondservant. You're the 
Kyrios, that's this word here, the Lord, the master, the ruler. You're the king and I'm the servant. Those two words are up here on the screen. This is not Greek. This is transliterated English here, but doulos and kyrios. James sees himself not as an influential leader, not as the brother of Jesus, but simply as a bondservant to the king. What he's telling us in just these first couple of words is that the Christ follower has a new identity. I think, I think we kind of know this, right? Like I'm crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ lives in me. I think we know this as Christians, if you're a Christian person, that we have a new identity. But I, I, honestly, I think we forget sometimes and we need to be reminded, don't you? Because like, we do, you know, we do the Sunday morning thing and we're here for like, you know, 75 minutes in a service or if I go long, like 85 or whatever. And then sometimes we go away from here and we kind of have done our God thing or we have our little Bible study during the week or whatever and we pray here and there. But we have not necessarily completely exchanged one identity for another. And James, in his very introduction of himself, this is how he sees himself. I have a new identity. I am not my own. I am not king of my life. I don't get to make my decisions anymore. I have offloaded my entire life and decision making to someone else, namely King Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christ follower. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. It's, it's so funny to me, and not funny, but it's like, it's a struggle. And I think for all of us, it really is a struggle. Like, you know, we have these things in our life where we struggle with obedience and we struggle to follow Christ and we struggle to obey God. And, and God comes along and he goes, it's not really a struggle anymore because you're a what? A doulos. The slave just does what the master says. The bond servant just reads and says, this is what God says, and then we go do it. And, and, that's, and that's not a negative thing, that's not a bad thing, but it is a thing that we have exchanged our identity and we are no longer our own. Our identity is not wrapped up in our job, in our vocation, in our relationships, in our sexuality. It's not wrapped up in Instagram or how much money you have or don't have. It's not wrapped up in any of those things. Your new identity as a Christ follower is doulos, bondservant to the master. And we're only five words in. Let's keep going. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Okay, so what he's referring to here is the 12 tribes of Israel. You may know this, that God's people in the Old Testament began with Abraham. Abraham had a couple children, those are uh, uh, lineage. And then there were 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament. So James is referring to Israel here, God's people in the Old Testament, pre-Jesus. But James, just want you to know, he's not writing to a Jewish audience. What he's telling us here is that he sees the church as kind of Israel 2.0, right? The new iteration of God's people. And he's referring to uh, the church scattered in the dispersion. Because remember, at this time, the church has scattered from Jerusalem. Everybody's running every which way but loose because of persecution in the Roman Empire. Because persecution from religious authorities. Because of persecution from the government and from the Roman emperor. And so they are all dispersed throughout first century Palestine, throughout the Roman Empire. And so he's writing to God's people... Scattered throughout the Roman Empire. 
And the first thing he says is, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, which, which tells you something, right, about what the church is dealing with at that particular time and place. I don't know why I picked these up, but I did. Something to fiddle with. Um, pick a card, any card. Uh, no. Um, so what that tells you when he starts talking about trials of many kinds immediately is that the church is dealing with trials of many kinds, right? If that's the first thing out of James's mouth or the first thing that comes off of his pen, he's talking about trials, you know that the church is dealing with difficult stuff. And they were. Christians were being thrown to the lions. They couldn't meet in public. They were meeting in secret for fear of persecution from religious authorities and government authorities. They were struggling with some hard stuff. People were getting killed for their faith. This was like a young, fledgling movement. And, 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 and the heat was being turned up on Christians in the Roman Empire at this time. And James says this. Watch it. He says, count it all joy. Now, this is a very interesting word in the original language. You may have other Bible translations that say, consider it all joy or reckon it all joy. This word, again, in the Greek, is, it's, it's, a, it's a choice. It's, it's volitional. It's an act of my will. This is not an emotional decision. This is something that, that people say, I am just going to make the decision to count trials in the pro column, not the con column. I'm going to count it all, what does he say, joy. I am going to make the decision that when trials come my way, and he says, not count it all joy if you face trials of many kinds. What's he say? Count it all joy when. It's not a matter of if, it's just a matter of when. He says, make the choice. When trials come your way, mentally you will say, these are positive things in my life. These are joy-bringing things in my life. Count it all joy when you face trials of various kinds. Now, a lot of folks would say that, that what he's talking about in terms of trials of various kinds here is the persecution that the church was experiencing in the Roman Empire. And yes, he's talking about persecution, but he's not just talking about persecution. He's talking about trials of various kinds. He, he's talking about uh, difficulty and challenge and struggle and just the day-to-day -day stuff that makes life really hard. Those disappointing moments, those times where your heart sinks, that passive-aggressive boss, that difficult diagnosis, when you're trying to make ends meet financially and you can't, says, whatever the trial, James says, you count it joy. Whatever the trial, you count it joy. I had a had a had a trial this week, a trial, a difficulty, a challenge this week. I, you know, I have I have two children, so my car is never clean, right? Like for those of you who have kids, like you, I, like, I, like some of your car, you get in your car and it's like, is how old is that popsicle? You know, and then I dropped uh, Amy and the kids off at the airport on Wednesday. We went through a uh, Tim Hortons drive-through and got Kaya a donut and some milk on the way to on the way to the <laughs> on the way to the airport. And Amy texts me after uh, while I'm driving home. She says, "Don't forget to get the milk out of the back seat." Because I would have gone home, parked that car, and not touched it because I don't drive that car. I would have left that milk in that in that car for two weeks, just baking in the sun. That would have been really bad, right? So my car is never clean. That's the point of the story, never clean. So I was so excited this week, I took my car to get it washed. 
And there's a, there's, a, there's a place right around the corner from my house that does a fantastic job. They vacuum it out. They wipe everything down. They get all those Cheerios out of there, half-eaten stuff, and they don't judge me, and it's amazing. And I was so excited. And my car's in the car wash, and it's getting clean, and it's polished and all that stuff. And while my car is getting washed, it starts to rain. Isn't that the worst? <laughs> Ugh. That's the worst. That was, that was my trial this week. I'll tell you what. I was like, oh, God, you know. Like, give me patience to endure, right? So, so here's the thing. I tell you that story not to, to say, well, your life is pretty good if that's the worst thing that happened to you all week, which it is. But here's the thing. Uh, it, there are moments in your life and my life where I, things are going good, right? Things are going well, and we're rocking along, and the car's getting washed, and the job's going well, and things are awesome, and your relationships are ticking along, and all of a sudden, something comes along, and it just starts to rain, right? And you're thinking, this thing that was a good thing now is a bad thing, and it's a difficult thing, and it's a trial, and it's a difficulty, it's a challenge. And James says, whatever the trial, count it joy. Call it joy. Mark it in the pro column. Okay? So that's the encouragement. That's the exhortation. And now he's going to tell us why. Check it. He says, because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. It's, it's interesting to me that he writes it this way because James could have said, uh, for God knows that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Or he could have just said as a neutral statement of fact, he says, when you face trials of various kinds, the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. But he looks at you and me and he says, you know this. Think about the times in your life that you have grown most spiritually and emotionally. Were they good times or bad times? They were bad times. They were difficult times. They were challenging times. James says, yeah, you know this. From experience, your muscles don't grow unless you put them under stress and strain. That's why you go to the gym and move heavy weights around, and it tears the muscle fiber, and then the muscles grow. But you get sore, right? You get sore. It's challenging. It's difficult. When you stop using the elevator and start taking the stairs next week, you're going to get sore. But your muscles are going to grow. See, James says the same thing. He says, you know that that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. You are going to grow when you meet trial and challenge and difficulty. It produces steadfastness. Love this word. This is a very interesting word because it's also translated patience. That, that, you, that you would persevere and that you would be patient, but it's not the kind of patience that's required for my daughter that's four years old to just sit and finish eating at the dinner table. It's not the kind of patience that's required when you go sit at Service Canada or Service Ontario. You go in and you take a number, and then nine hours later, you have all the joy sucked out of you, right? Because you're just, you just have to patiently wait. That's not the kind of patience and steadfastness he's talking about here. What he's talking about is the type of patience that it takes to finish a marathon. He's saying it's a patient endurance. It's a perseverance. It's a choice that I set out to run 26.2 miles, and at about mile 20, 21, 22, my body's starting to give out, and it wants to quit. He says, no, bear up under it. It Remain underneath them is that word. You know, in, in, in my life and in your life, I, I don't know about you, but I want to get out from underneath trial and difficulty, don't you? 
Like, I want to avoid pain. And, and James says, stay underneath it. Let steadfastness have its full effect. What he's telling us here, and I think, and I think this is really, really key, is that life and patience and steadfastness is less of a waiting room and it's more of a marathon. Right? It, this is not just we sit on our duff and we just wait and endure. This is an active perseverance to put one foot in front of the other, even in the midst of challenge, pain, and difficulty. That's what James says. He says it's less of a waiting room, it's more of a marathon to bear up underneath trials because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance, patience, steadfastness, and steadfastness can have its full effect so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So what he's talking about here is so that the likeness of Christ would be complete in you. Because those trials, those difficulties, those challenges make you more like Jesus. They drive us upward. Trials, difficulty, and challenges drive us to our knees in prayer, and they drive us closer to God. They drive us upward. I heard a story one time of, of a particular type of deer in northern Utah, and every year there's, uh, there's this group of flies, this one uh, particular species of fly that bothers the absolute snot out of these deer. Right? They bite and they annoy and they buzz and all that stuff. And the only way these deer, deer or deers? Deer. I knew it. I knew it. I knew it right when I said it. So it, the only way that they can escape this really annoying fly that bites them and whatever else is they've got to run up. Because once they get up above about 8,000 feet, those flies don't exist above 8,000 feet. So they run up to escape the fly. Interestingly enough, in that, very, in that particular time of year, the only place they can find food and water is up above 8,000 feet. So this thing that these deer might you know, imagine, this is annoying and it's biting me and it's causing pain and difficulty and trial, it also drives them to the only place that they can survive to get food and water. See, the same thing happens with trials in our life. They drive us closer to Jesus. They drive us closer to God. I don't know about you, but my prayer life is a lot better when my life is hard. Right? I tend to go to God a little more often. I tend to bow the knee a little more often. I tend to ask him for his help a little more often. Charles Spurgeon, often called uh, the Prince of Preachers, actually wrote this about trial and difficulty in his life. Watch. He says, I've looked back to times of trial with a kind of longing. Interesting, right? Not to have them return, but to feel the strength of God as I had felt it then. To feel the power of faith as I had felt it then. To hang upon God's powerful arm as I hung upon it then. And to see God at work as I saw him then. That's what trials do. That's what challenges do. That's what difficulty does. When our life gets hard, it drives us upward. Now, I didn't have a really great closing story for this message until I preached in the first service. And then about five minutes into my sermon in the first service, I had a panic attack. I mean, it was it was wild. So, some of you know I've shared that before, like my mental health, and, and th there are just times where I feel anxiety. Has anybody, you ever have it, had a panic attack before? You think you're having a heart attack, right? It's like there's an elephant sitting on my chest or something, and I'm up here by myself. 
I don't have a, like a guitar player I can go, can you fill in, right? Right, drum solo, right? I don't have that. Like I have no notes, I have no net, and I'm five minutes in, I have a little panic attack. I preached, you guys, I preached in the first service for 25 minutes. Usually I preach for 45. I preached for 25 minutes, I pulled the ripcord, I got, I'm just done, I gotta go. And the first service was like, oh yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a wonderful day outside, so this is great, this is awesome. I think they were really excited about it. I tell you what, though, it drove me to my knees. It might not have been the greatest sermon I ever preached, but it made me a little more humble today. I hung a little tighter and, 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 and clung a little closer to the mighty arm of God. Now, I still don't feel really good. I feel a little bit nauseous. But how crazy would it be if I threw up right now? That would be wild, right? I promise I won't. My knees feel weak. I don't, I, don't, I don't feel great. But I count it joy, at least I try, because I know that the testing of my faith produces steadfastness. And steadfastness, I've got to remain up underneath that stuff, not escape that stuff. I've got to remain up underneath it because steadfastness will have its full effect. And that full effect is that I would be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. So men and women of God, when the diagnosis comes, when your son or daughter goes off the rails, when you start having a panic attack, when you start trying to make ends meet financially and you just can't seem to do it, when life is hard inside, when life is hard outside, James says and Jesus says, you count it all joy because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. I'm so grateful today that the victory has been won, that Jesus is king, that I'm his due loss, and that even when life is hard, I can count it joy and cling a little closer to the mighty arm of God. Would you pray with me? God, may we be reminded today that we have a new identity, and we are yours and yours alone. Do loss, a bondservant to the king. And God, may we be exhorted today, stoked a little bit, moved to mark trials in the pro column, to make that decision to put a tally mark underneath joy when we experience trial. God, it's not easy. It's not easy to make that choice. We forget, we get sidetracked, we get distracted. We have to be reminded. So God, our prayer today is that this would be a reminder to count it all joy when we face trials of many kinds because we know that the testing of our faith develops steadfastness and steadfastness must have its full effect so that we may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. Thank you, God, for an opportunity to hear from your word today in Christ's name. As people said.